Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy, howdy, folks, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. I would like to begin this episode by thanking the patrons who support the show, both of you. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Well, there's a few of them. Over there on patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. And uh, that little bit of grease really helps keep the wheels in motion. I'd also like to suggest to you that you take a look at my main website, bradleylaird.com, which is full of free and paid instructional materials for a variety of bluegrass instruments and topics. Um, including lots of mandolin stuff, banjo stuff, claw hammer, dulcimer, bass, you name it. If you're a beginner in the bluegrass thing, you probably can find some useful free material there. And if you like that, explore my more um, elaborate paid videos, courses, and ebooks. That too helps keep grease on the wheels. All right, enough of the commercializing. Today's episode is a conversation that I had with my old friend and bluegrass colleague, Jim Duck Adkins. He lives up in Marietta, Georgia. I played right beside him for 27 and a half years in the band Cedar Hill. He is a teacher. He is a singer. He is a banjo player. He is an entertainer. And he's a general, all-around good guy, and I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Jim Duck Adkins. So here we go. I'm here with Jim Duck Adkins. So welcome to Grass Talk Radio, Jimmy. You and I go back at least 45, maybe 47 years. I think I met you in 1975. So there's an endless array of potential stories that could come out today. Uh, But let's just begin by introduce yourself a little bit. And to start, tell everybody where you were born and when. Okay, well, I'm Jim Duck Atkins. Duck is my nickname because I talk like a duck. Hi, everybody. What you doing? Today is a beautiful day, and I think it's incredible. Yep. Yep, there you go. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Anyway, I was born in 1953 in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, at the time, my dad was a Baptist preacher. And we lived in a lot of different places, but I was born in Atlanta, but we lived all over Georgia and North Carolina for the most part. We moved 13 times before I was 13, let me put it that way. Yeah, that sounds like a country preacher, you know, sometimes a circuit preacher. He had three churches at one point, but I digress. We want to talk about bluegrass, whatever. (laughs) We don't have to. We don't have to. But but anyway, here's a little bit more about me. Uh, I started off in music playing the uh, piano, learning in, you know, at, at first grade. And uh, I took piano lessons maybe to third grade, and I really didn't enjoy it. So I used to hide my music so I would, you know, tell my mom that I can't find it. I don't know where it is. But anyway, <laughs> um, piano, and then uh, I was in Dublin, Georgia at the time. And, you know, they do these little, uh, I say they, these school administrations or whatever, they uh, have these programs where they give kids like a recorder. We called it a tonette back then. Right, a little black and, tonette. Uh, that's right. And uh, so they gave that to us and, you know, had us, you know, learn to play it and stuff. And then they assigned us band instruments based on their observations of our musical ability. Well, I wanted to go with the drums. And the guy said, no, 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 no. We need you on trombone. Uh <laughs> so anyway, that's what I got assigned in, in the third grade, if you can believe that. And, you know, I I played 
I guess when I got in high school, I played the trombone. But you know, growing up from the third grade to the sixth grade, that's when I got involved with the accordion. I was living in Woodbury, Georgia at the time. And that was really where I formed my first first group with the, the Morgan Brothers. And uh, we called ourselves the Alley Cats. <laughs> and we would go around playing, obviously, the Alley Cat theme song, but, you know, to little civic organizations and, you know, Boy Scouts, things like that. Right. Then we moved from Woodbury to, to Lincoln, Georgia, and that's when I got interested in the guitar at eighth grade. And uh, my dad learned, he didn't learn, he, he wanted to learn how to play the, the guitar, but he... Uh, he got a guitar from a, an old guy named Milford Myers that he ended up teaching me. Milford taught me how to play country guitar. And so uh, I learned that, and about a year later, my dad got me a silver tone lick. You know, wow. bright, bright, bright. Lots of soprano, tenor, you know, pierced through your ear with a little bitty uh, uh, amp that was, at the time, was pretty doggone loud. Almost like a banjo. That's right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that was guitar, and formed my my first band in uh, high school. Um, and we were a no-name. We didn't sing, we just played. But we did soul music and some old rock, Beatles and stuff, but I guess back then we were worn to play it and we were singing. All right. So the only only real gig we had was in Oldfolk County. I had a cousin that lived there. And he asked us to play at their junior senior prom. Oh boy, a band that doesn't sing. So anyway, we got there, and this was in my younger days. I was spreading my wings. We showed up in a, a 1957 white hearse, and I was riding up on top where the the red light was on on the very top outside the, the hearse and stuff. But anyway, make a long story short, there. We played probably the first hour of the junior senior prom, and and nobody got up and danced. They just looked at it. Everybody was just looking so sad, forlorn, <laughs> and stuff. And then, all of a sudden, about the second hour, one couple had enough courage to get up and start dancing, and everybody else got up and danced. But you know, I look back on it, and I'm thinking, man. You know, I, I really embarrassed myself looking back on it. You know, then at that time, I didn't really care. I was having fun, you know. <laughs> so, you know, after high school, I went to the University of Georgia. That's where I saw the light. That's where I learned to pick the banjo. And I would go home on weekends. No, not on weekends. During the weekdays, catch Little Roy Lewis of the Lewis family at home. And the home was in Lincoln, Georgia, and I would go there with my old uh, tape recorder and uh, just record Little Roy playing some songs and stuff, and I'd go back to college, skip skip class, and learn those songs. And <laughs> so, so you were on banjo then? Yeah, I was. University of Georgia is where I learned to pick banjo, and also in my younger days where I learned to drink from sun up to fall down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. You remember those days. Vaguely. So, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so, you know, got into banjo, and I was in the men's glee club there for three and a half years. And, you know, I, having sung in churches uh, since I was young, and I developed an ear for music and for harmony and that sort of thing. So men's glee club was right down my hollow, right up my hollow, I should say. And uh, so I, I was in a group, a subgroup of that, called the Buzzsaw Boogie Band. And it was kind of a bluegrass, folk rock type group and stuff. So we had a lot of fun with that. And uh, then, you know, after graduation, um, there was one guy that was in the men's league club, Jeff Johnson. And uh, he was still going to school. I was a senior when he was a freshman. And so, anyway, he was still going to UGA. We formed a band with his brother and some other guys. And we I think two guys got drunk on tequila one night and came up with the, the band name of Sapwood Society. Pickers. Right, I remember, I remember that name. Yep. And so, uh, anyway, we we played a lot of stuff around Atlanta, <clears throat> up in North Georgia, Big New, and some of those mountain communities up there and stuff. Had a great time. Used to play the old uh, American Rap Race in Atlanta. 
was uh, the weirdest that was thing. Incredible. It yeah. was. I tell you, <laughs> if people can imagine about ten thousand people all up and down the river banks, and they all made their own little floats and stuff, and some of them were having parties on those floats going down the river, and it was it was pretty wild. And that, of course, for you non-Georgia people, that is the Chattahoochee River. A lot of people don't think of it of Atlanta as being a river town, but the Chattahoochee comes out of, basically out of Helen, Georgia, in the foothills or in the Appalachians, comes That's down right. through Atlanta and is pretty big and yeah, ultimately yeah. goes down to Columbus and then to Apalachicola and dumps into the Gulf after it has joined with the Flint River. But that was the Great American, what, what was the raft official race. name? Raft Race. My yep. brother entered that thing, I think in 75, him and a bunch of guys built some kind of contraption, and <laughs> I don't know. People would build build some weird stuff, and uh, I tell you, they were partying so hardy out there. I thought I was back at the University of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody <laughs> needs to bring the raft race back. Yeah, but if you remember, you know, uh, we formed. I see Bob McIsaac and I formed uh, Cedar Hill in '76. We may have met in '75, but um, you know, we played. Um, for a while, and then I think it was about 1982 or three. Was it when you joined? 83. 83. Because our previous uh, Manning player, uh, Chip Dunbar, went out to California. Yeah, and, and let me interrupt just a second to clarify yeah. my part of Cedar Hill. Sure. I knew you from about 75 on. Right. And got to know you very well like in 77 78 playing out at julian's tavern oh yeah on monday night on monday night that was the place around atlanta back in the day yeah and the place where you could go pick and jam and get free beer yeah what a deal what a deal <laughs> that's like branches branches saloon in in tifton where i had the same deal um, yeah but you were miles ahead of me which means you were playing five years and i was playing Two years, you know. Well, you know, when I first met Bob and Fred, the brothers, McIsaac brothers, and, you know, um, they really hadn't got too much into bluegrass at that point, you know. So we used to meet on Thursday nights for probably three hours, and I would show them everything that I know. They knew every song that I knew after about two years. Now, were you meeting down at their place or in Yeah, Morrow? their place. They lived in, uh, you know, outside Love of Jonesburg, Georgia. Yeah. Yeah, Love Joy. Hippie Lake. That's right, down that way. <laughs> and stuff. And both of them had hair down, you know, of course, like Fred had that red hair all the way down to the middle of his back. And they both had long beards and stuff. I mean, if you see them, you know, they're the kind of people that, you know, if you were in a... Uh, uh, an alley in downtown Atlanta, you'd be scared. <laughs> well, I remember when I first met you guys, you used to call them the Smith Brothers. Because That's they, right. They look like those guys on the cough drops. Right, right. These 1880s looking beards, you know. Yeah, that's right. So, anyway, <laughs> funny thing about that is, you know, I never had a beard. And uh, just within the last two years, I've grown a beard, and <laughs> it's white enough for me to be Santa Claus. So, I've got I've got quite a growth over the the beard over the face and stuff, but you know, not so much on top anymore. <laughs> yeah, they had it back in those days. Boy, those guys had some serious beards. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. And we would just play every Thursday. We would get together and we just play for three hours or so, you know, nonstop. And that's kind of how um, we cut our teeth together. You know, I, I'd already learned some bluegrass and that stuff. I learned to play banjo at the University of Georgia. And so by the time I left there, I was on my right hand, my roll uh, on the right hand was getting pretty smooth. And this is an encouragement to banjo pickers or wannabe banjo pickers out there, is that the key to learning to play the banjo is you've got to get the foundation down. And the foundation really is the right hand roll. If you'll learn those rolls, so, you know, the forward roll, backward roll, forward reverse roll, alternating thumb if you learn all those and just take it real slow don't worry about speed and you get that muscle memory in that right hand then you you know that's that's kind of like okay you, you set your foundation just with that right hand and you know if you'll learn just four chords g c d and a 
you can get out and jam with people without even knowing how to place a solo on the banjo. All you do is roll the chords. And that's what I encourage everyone to do if you're wanting to learn to play the banjo. But let me interrupt. That'll uh-huh. get you started. But that's yeah. not what I heard you doing when I met you. Well, I know. Well, I was all... Uh, I mean, I, you were you know, doing that, but... You know, but you I, were... <laughs> you know, when I when I started teaching banjo, I didn't take that approach. I mean, I, I did teach roles and stuff like that, but I immediately gave, you know, gave them Cripple Creek and you know, Boiling Cabs Down, some of those beginner songs like that and stuff. But, you know, years later, I say years later, it was probably about 2008. Uh, you know, I had met Pete Wernick of Hot Rise uh, several years before in about uh, 1980 uh, out in Colorado. And uh, Pete and Hot Rise were coming to do a show at the Variety Playhouse in Atlanta, down at Little Five Points, where all the weirdos hang out, <laughs> including us, I guess, sometimes. Yeah, that but, is uh, true. Yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, I knew he was coming, so I called him up and I said, Pete, can I take you out to supper? Uh, he said, sure, let's plan on doing that. He says, uh, you know, right, tell me about what time. And so anyway, I took him, uh, my wife, Carol, and I took him out to supper right there in Little Five Points at the Yacht Club, which is, you know. Uh, right, ball. Euclid Avenue That's uh, right. Yacht Club. That's right. And we were sitting there talking, and he was asking me about myself, and I was telling him about, you know, all the jam sessions. You, uh, you lead, you know, down at the Red Light Cafe off Amsterdam. Avenue in Atlanta and different places and being a SEBA president, you know, back in what, 1987, hey, just gave him a yeah, lowdown and all yeah. of a sudden his eyes got kind of big and a light bulb kind of clicked on. He said, you would be perfect for uh, my jam class that I'm, uh, have created for instructors to teach. You mean like he was that. talking about that back in 1980? Not, 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 not. You must be a decade off. <laughs> I yeah, don't no, know. no, no. This was, it was in 2008. Oh, because. You, you know, I, I, I went back to the <laughs> 80s right. when I first met him, but it was in 2008 Just, when they performed there at the Friday Playhouse, which wasn't the first time. Okay, but, right. Know. Okay. Yeah, I think. But maybe the bottom you... line is, is that uh, Pete, uh, for people that don't know who Pete is, he's a very, very, very intellectual and uh, banjo picker. Like you. And, I guess so. I think he might be a little bit more intellectual. He gave a lot more thought. To well, he does I, have I a just, PhD. Well, I know. You know, I just like to pick. I didn't sit there and worry about, you know, <laughs> trying to get too educated on the right. fringes of stuff and right. all, you know. But like Bill anyway, Keith, he too. asked me about that, and I told him I'd think about that. And about, you know, three or four months later, I called him up and I said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll be a... a Bluegrass Jam Class Instructor Teaching the Wernick Method. And the Wernick Method, I've already given you a little bit of it. It talks about learning those four chords, learning how to keep rhythm, you know, learning how to kick off a song, how to end a song, how to lead a song if you're, you know, in a jam session and you're the one singing. You know, uh, the number system uh, that's, you know, famous in Nashville, but that's so people understand chord progression, you know. Uh, whatever key you're playing in, that's the one chord. So you're and doing, you're one of those uh, Wernick Method instructors presently. Right. I see your thing pop up on Banjo Hangout and other, other yeah, places. Yeah, you know, I hadn't taught a class in a little over a year and a half, but it was because of COVID. Yeah, of course, of uh, course. And stuff. But uh, anyway, I've I've done, I've been doing that. I did that since like 2009, I think was my first one. Yeah, and let me mention to the audience that is uh, Duck lives around Marietta, Georgia. So That's think right. think Atlanta and to the northwest of Atlanta. That's right. If that's your area, you definitely want to go to one of Duck's um But you know what? Uh, I'm thinking classes. I'm considering doing one in Fayetteville. Uh, I've got a, a friend down there that uh, she her church uh, she's offering to me, you know, at, at no rent. So that's kind of the way I like to try to do those. So, right, right. You know, you can maximize something, particularly if you're going to be driving, you know, 45 minutes to an hour or both ways going to. But anyway, uh, so I have taught uh, probably between two and 300 people how to 
jam on bluegrass. This this method is for people who've learned to play and maybe want to improve their skills, but it's more directed for those that want to learn how to jam. So you got to be able to you know play those four chords kind of smoothly. But once you do that, if you're playing an instrument like a guitar or a banjo, you know, and somebody wants to do something in A, all you do is capo, like on the second fret. Right. And you can still play your G, C, D, and A chord position just in a different key. So the number system helps out when you've got some instruments that use a capo, like a guitar and a banjo, and then you have other instruments like fiddle and mandolin and bass fiddle that don't use a capo. So whoever in a jam session uh, is calling out the song is going to leave the next song. All we have to do is say what key we're playing in, and uh, it's just, you know, just three chords, one, four, five chords, okay? Well, what, so we know what the one chord is. That's the key that you're playing in. The four chord is just four steps up from the one chord. So if you're in playing in G... It sounds like you're teaching the class right now. Uh, continue. Yeah, well, I'm just giving them a, a hint <laughs> so they can understand the number system a little bit better. Yeah, I got you. You're right. Yeah. You know, I get into this teacher-instructor mode. So, you know, pull pull me back on the reins when you need to, but just to finish up on the number system. <laughs> okay. You know, there's only there's only seven letters uh, of chords, if you think about it. You know, you got A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then you go right back to A. So, you know, seven letters. So if you're playing in G, well, you just count up. If G's the one chord, A would be the two chord, B would be the three chord, C would be the four chord. Well, if C is the four chord, what's the, what's the next step up? The five chord would be a D. So there's your one, four, five, and G. And that's a, a quick explanation of the, uh, uh, you know, the number system. But just Now, uh, Duck, uh, let me inter- interrupt here. Yeah. I started teaching in 1982 as well, and my experience is at about that point is when people begin nodding off. Yeah, they do. Some of them do, but if you're, uh, but you know, you're right, it goes over the head. If somebody's a real beginner, I mean, you know, listen. When you start to learn to play, you're playing at home. You know, you can stop, start whenever you want to, slow up, speed, you know, or speed up or whatever. But when you start to learn to play with uh, other people, there are a whole different set of skills that you've got to have to be able to jam. You're right. And that is being able just to focus on your playing while you're hearing all this other stuff going on, for example. You're right. You hey, know? let me drop in one of my, you know, I always like to take both sides of every every sure. issue. Um, <clears throat> you're the devil's advocate. At, at times, I am the devil. But... Um, <laughs> I could be viewed as the devil's advocate. Um, yeah. <laughs> however, w- what I've noticed is a lot of teachers try to get people like up to speed so they can barely function as a jamming bluegrass musician. And to me, that is completely the opposite of what it takes to become a true bluegrass musician and performer. Barely hanging on at a jam session is a different goal than yeah, you know what? being on stage, entertaining people, and playing well. Well, that that's the beauty of this process. Some of the students that I've taught that were just raw green beginners, or whatever they've gone, they took my class maybe four, five, six times, and now they formed a band and they're out performing, making money. That's the biggest compliment you can have to it. It is, but I will you say know? that is pretty rare. Yeah, but you know, jam sessions are really where you cut your teeth in learning to play bluegrass. True. You know? uh, let me say this about jammers too, and I'm not insulting jammers. I've oh, done yeah. a lot of, I've helped a lot of people learn to play along, or jump into a jam, or play Cripple Creek and boil them cabbage down. Lord knows, my whole website is almost about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and. But the thing in favor of the jammers, though 95% of them will never be in a band with a name, with a paying gig. Right. But they are your supporters and fans of the bands who do those things. Yeah. And, you know, they love the music. And, you know, a lot of people, they don't want to uh, become a, a performer on stage and stuff. They just enjoy the camaraderie of getting together with people and jamming. 
Right. Well, you know? let me um, let me wind the clock back again. You were talking all about Peter Wernick's um, 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 method, and yeah. you're teaching that and stuff. Let's back way up because I know that both of us in the beginning learned primarily from a book. Yeah. And that and, and would be Earl's book, maybe Pete Seeger's book, and Wernick's, yeah, Wernick's Bluegrass Banjo Oak Publications, I think came out in 74. Yep. Yep. I know that you and I both had it, and then Trishka had some books, Melodic Banjo, yep. and that was about all there was. There were no videos. And when, yeah, not back then. When you learn, learn to play, how much of it was from learning tab and sorting it out on your own from those kind of books? Well, primarily, I leaned on tab to learn to play the notes, because tab is really your tablature, is your roadmap for, you know, where, which string to strike and which finger on the right hand to pluck it with. And um, so, you know, uh, tab is a very useful tool uh, to have. Uh, but through the years, uh, I like teaching by tab and by ear because you learn quicker uh, if you learn something by ear and the problem with tab is is that a lot of people they learn a song by tab and that's the only way they will play it is exactly like the tab and a lot of them never get away from the tab they have to have the paper in front of them even though they've learned the song it gives them comfort right so right. the best thing you can do if you use tab and it is a valuable tool is to learn it as quickly as possible, memorize it and get away from the paper the tab. And then, you know, as you start progressing, you'll, you know, you're learning more licks along the way. And then you'll start adding little things that you like to hear, uh, you know, instead of just sticking, sticking straight to the tab. Right. And everybody's a little bit different. I mean, the way Peter Wernick would play something is not necessarily the way you would naturally play it, but you That's give right. his a try and you pull the things out of what he's doing that suits you, and then you put in your own stuff or maybe grab some stuff from other people. Right, and that's a really good point, Brad. The uh, the thing that I have learned is that if you really want to learn how to play banjo, you never stop learning. Here, I've been playing since 1971, and I'm still learning new licks, and I still get excited right. when I see another banjo player play something that I hadn't played exactly like that before. I get on the show and show it. And that's how I picked up a lot of my banjo licks. It's right. just getting sitting down with other banjo players and getting them to show me stuff, you know? Yep. So that's an encouragement. You never stop learning. It's a love-hate relationship because it's a process. It's not an event. So you have to just stick with it, create that muscle memory, and, you know, and start creating your uh, collection of licks, G licks, C licks, D licks, and stuff. And uh, then, you know, you have, uh, you can make decisions when you're playing, which one of those leaks am I going to insert right here? Guess right. what you're doing? Right. You're improvising. It, all improv improvisation is, is when you decide you have more than one way to play something, you decide which way you're going to play it kind of on the fly. And so you're making decisions in your brain as, as maybe you have the melody going through and stuff. But anyway, improvisation is just playing something, deciding to play it a little different than you did last time. That's why you, when you hear banjo or any uh, bluegrass musician taking a break, they rarely, if they take two breaks, they rarely play the same break twice. Yeah, so, I, I have made the statement that it's practically impossible to actually play the same thing twice. Ever. That's right. Exactly. I, I don't you know? think it's doable. I mean, maybe some robotic classical players can do it. But... I mean, you can try to play the same notes, but each time you play it, you're going to be maybe a, a little ahead or a little behind or, you know, but you're still, you know, staying within the, you know, the, the rhythm of the song. But sometimes, you know, that's what we do in bluegrass, uh, particularly on banjo. We're playing around with the timing and the rhythm as we're doing our licks and stuff, right. it's just it's just not straight. You know, when you're playing country, everything seems right on the beat, you know, real steady, you know. But on bluegrass, you know, it, you're kind of pushing the beat. You're right on the edge or right on the front edge of that, uh, you know, first downbeat or whatever. And so, you know, that kind of gives it a little bit more of that uh, drive 
I guess you could say. I think you're absolutely right. I hear it. Um, like play with guys like you, Bob McIsaac, Fred, David Ellis, certainly. Um, They don't speed up, but they are advanced. It's like setting the timing on your old Volkswagen, you know, where you got the spark hitting early. Now, you know what? Uh, Our current bass player in Cedar Hill, Jerry Zalmowski, we call him Jerry Z, he says we do speed up or something. And, hey, maybe we do. If you listen to any live music, very rarely are they going to be just Right on the beat. Sometimes right. it might speed up a little bit and it might come back just a little bit. But that's part of the the living, breathing music as we play it. Right. You know? Yeah. I took so, some old Flatt and Scruggs um, recordings. I think when we were, we'll get to this in a second, but we were working up towards the Earl Scruggs thing at uh, Turner Field in Atlanta, the Earl Scruggs yeah. tribute. And in order to try to come up with a the, the deal was, and you can explain further in a minute, because I want to talk about this tempo thing. We were supposed to play the song Foggy Mountain Breakdown in order to qualify for the Guinness Book of World's Records, had to play it for five minutes. So okay. we have all of these banjo players and we have to figure out, well, what tempo do we play it at? Because yeah. you have 240 banjo picks. Right. You have to have something that everyone can do. So, that's right. So I recorded find, the thing and yeah. with a metronome and worked out. They ran they various recordings of Flat and Scruggs on that tune ran from 132 to as high as 148, and it varied within the same song. I think we ended up settling, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a hundred. 100 or 110 or something. You and I were suspicious, and other banjo pickers were too, when they heard how fast Earl was playing. It kind of felt like they were maybe sped the tape up a little bit mm-hmm. because some sometimes it wasn't right on the pitch. It was a little bit above the pitch or whatever, you know. But I digress. Uh, let's tell them a little bit about this uh, tribute to Earl Scruggs. Um, I was working for Banjo.com at the time, and trying to come up with some ways to bring more attention to this at the time was a local music store here owned by John Drummond, banjo.com. He also owned uh, unicycle.com, kind of a cool combination. Well, you know, I always thought he should have started tennisrackets.com and fryingpans.com because <laughs> everything was a circle with a stick. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, you know, I was down at your house. We were playing uh, just together just jamming messing around or whatever and i mentioned the fact that we needed to come up with something you know that would bring more attention or get publicity for banjo.com and you're the one that came up and said well why don't you do uh a have set a guinness world record for the most banjo players to play pocket mountain break <laughs> i and remember I that said, what a great idea and i took it to john and he jumped on it and we contacted the braves and told them we wanted to, you know, get as many banjo pickers as we could to set against work. And they loved the idea. So, you know, any one thing led to the next. And that particular day, they had a double header because the day before it had rained out. So they had us play between the games. Right. And there were 240 banjo pickers that showed up. Man, van loads and truck loads, I should say tractor loads even, from Alabama. <laughs> I know. There were a lot from Alabama. <laughs> I mean, they, they just came out of the woodworks and stuff. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to uh, have met Earl and stuff through a friend of mine, little, my, my mentor, little Roy Lewis. His foster daughter, Lizzie Long, well, she had uh, moved to Nashville and, you know, was playing fiddle, and she became friends with Earl and, and Louise Scruggs. And uh, after Louise went in the hospital, she asked, you know, Lizzie to take care of Earl. And she would take him out to, you know, go grocery shopping and cook for him and do different stuff. And so anyway, got to know Earl Scruggs. And and so put this bug in Lizzie's ear to see if maybe Earl would participate. Well, the participation came in this form. Gibson gave uh, uh, their bus, didn't give it to him, but, you know, 
took Earl and his entourage, about 11 people, from uh, you know Nashville down to Atlanta on the Gibson bus. You know, they had that beautiful guitar on the outside right. and, and all that stuff. Let me interrupt and, here. My, yeah. my one, other than playing Foggy Mountain Breakdown for five minutes with the rest of the crowd, and I did design the T-shirt as well. Um, yeah. My one, the high point of the my little part in that, that event was you asked me if I could go up there and stand on the corner of Capitol Avenue and watch for Earl's bus. Yeah, and that's right. when he come up there, flag him down, hop on the bus, and direct the bus driver where to park. So I yeah. walked that off. I knew exactly where to go. And I stood out on the street corner and I saw that bus coming flagged him down, hopped on the bus, and mm-hmm. there was Earl sitting right behind that little rail where, where as you come up the stairs, Earl oh, yeah. and Gary were sitting right there, shook hands with Earl and stuff, and and directed the ba- the bus. Uh, so I was on the bus for like 45 seconds. So that was, but I a think that thrill. was the, uh, it was a big thrill to me. And then, sure. uh, anyway, that was my little part. That's all I really did other than play a bad version of Foggy Mountain Breakdown with the rest yeah. of the crowd. But, well, you know uh, what? Continue the, on. Yeah, the, uh, the Braves gave Earl a skybox for his entourage. And so Earl didn't pick with us, but he watched and listened to us when we were playing for five minutes Foggy Mountain Breakdown. And they had him on the big screen. They had us on the big screen. You can see... You can see Earl just, you know, smiling and laughing, and all of them up in his in the skybox there. They were just having a great time, and it was a, a tribute, you know, to Earl. Uh, and so we played it for five minutes, and we had a conductor <laughs> trying to conduct. But the thing about it was, this is this is crazy. We practiced and rehearsed under a big white tent, you know, not in the infield area or where the people sit, but back in the some of the back parts of the stadium and it sounded great we all kicked in but when we got out there on the field they spread us out they put some down the third baseline some down the first baseline and then the core of us that you know you and me and bob fred and john and uh drummond and some other people that you know part of our little group there uh we were on the pitcher's mound right and so we had a couple of microphones in front of us actually was at home plate we were at home plate yeah, at home plate. Uh, so that's true. And so anyway, the uh, the music kicked off. I mean, we kicked off the song. But what folks need to realize, when uh, you play a microphone through a system that's at a stadium, it's about a two-second delay. Yeah, they're like 80. It comes out of the speakers. Yeah, it's like 80 sets of speakers scattered around this, like, 10-acre thing. It's yeah. crazy. So I, I'm not really sure how good it sounded. I can all I can say is that everybody, all the fans and Earl and everybody just loved it, and we enjoyed it too. And at the very end of it, you know, we all raised our banjos up and looked at Earl up in the skybox up there, and we raised our banjos up and said Earl, Earl, and kept chanting Earl. And it was like, you know, it was like one of those hair-raising moment. You know, it really was. It was. It was and just, there is a YouTube video of this event. I'll, I'll see if I can find... I think I may have posted it on a different episode one time when I was talking about this, but I'll, I'll see if I can find that video. But probably anybody could look up Earl Scruggs Tribute, Guinness, Atlanta... Brace, uh, Atlanta Brace, you know. Turner Field, uh, that kind of thing. You'll find it. Yeah, now we took a video of the whole thing. I mean, John paid a uh, hefty price to a guy to, you know, to video and document the whole thing, start to finish, and uh, got that thing edited. But John had told Gary, who was Scruggs' son, that uh, they would not publish it or do anything with it until it got his approval. Doesn't want to let them know we're on up and up. Yeah. Well, Anyway, Gary would never approve it. We we sent it and docked it for two or three times, and he just would never approve it. So oh, well. we never got to officially release that one. So the one that you're hearing out there on the on YouTube or on the internet is one that someone else took, not the official. Right, somebody never was, got released. There were a lot of videos, people with phone, you know video cameras or something that went up there. Um, I remember there being quite a 
a pretty good, I mean, every banjo player I knew was there. Yeah. Um, and there were some people like Mike Bubb. I know Jeff Mosier was there. Can you think of anybody else that, I mean, there were, there were some people that, you know, it was such a crowd of people. It yeah. was impossible to take role and really see who all was there. But I know there yeah. were some, there were some well, serious there, Earl fans there. Absolutely. And there were a lot of good musicians and pickers. And I'm sure there was probably a hundred bands represented maybe by the number of pickers that were there. Probably so. And there was an absolute madhouse jam session going on oh, yeah. in that oh, practice area. Yeah. yeah. It was, and it just, you know, it's just like any other jam session. It ain't going to stop until, <laughs> you know, it's time to go out and do the event. So, anyway, that was a lot of fun. We had a great time with that. Earl really appreciated it. And, uh, you know, luckily enough, I, I've i been doing a show with Little Roy Lewis for 46 years. This will be our 46th year on Thanksgiving Eve. Now, we have moved it from Thanksgiving Eve to the Tuesday before so Thanksgiving Eve, Eve, we have it now. Because Leroy and Lizzie, Leroy and Lizzie show, you know, have a gig on, on uh, Thanksgiving Eve. And plus, more people can attend because you think about it, Thanksgiving Eve, there's a lot of people out there cooking, getting ready for the next day, and they got family and stuff. So that's working out even better. So 46 years, we'll be doing it again, uh, you know, this uh, Thanksgiving Eve, Eve. So it's a kind of a jam show. So if you're a picker or just a listener, you're welcome to come and participate. Yeah, I had Lizzie on the show, and uh, she talked a good bit about that thing, and also talked about the Earl event and all that. Uh, let's yeah. let's shift gears here a little bit and okay. talk some about. <clears throat> we kind of skipped over this whole history of you as a performer, and right. I knew I knew you, and I knew Cedar Hill. I was actually there. I was present at the moment you guys chose the name Cedar Hill. We don't have to go into that story necessarily, really whatever yeah. you want to talk about, but that was like in 75. I had another yeah. band I was playing in called the Bluegrass Barnstormers at that time. It was prior to Pony Express. Yeah. And then when I went off to college in 75, nine i started pony express and i was certainly aware of you guys because we'd show up at the same festivals and i'd bump into you at julian's when i was home on a holiday or something like that or out for the summer so i, I really knew all of you guys very well in fact i hired you guys to play at my wedding that's right in 1982 at the wedding reception i hired cedar hill and right. uh, and i always thought it was funny that you guys were there, set up in the clubhouse of like the Morrow Townhouses Apartments Clubhouse or something, wherever <laughs> we had the reception. And you guys were there, and I was so excited that you guys were there because you were the hottest bluegrass band in Atlanta. And I said, and I had Pony Express, the guys all in Pony Express were going to be there. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, could we get up and do one with you? You know, and you were like, yeah, cool. Well, anyway, the funny part about this story was my father was, of course, footing the bill for the, uh, at least the booze for the reception. And he came in there, and you guys had already set up your PA, and were back in the back room playing pool. You know, Bob and Fred with their long beards and long hair. Oh, yeah. And Chip with his long hair, and you guys hanging out back there shooting pool. And my dad came in there and told told you guys you had to get the hell out of there because they're about to have a wedding reception. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know that I had hired, and I came up and said, Dad, no, they're the band. They're the band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I guess back then, particularly with Bob and Fred, uh, we looked a little bit more like hippies. You know, <laughs> of course, I was working for Delta, so I had, I had to get my long hair cut. Uh, I started in 79 with Delta. So, uh, But anyway, yeah, and then, you know, at your wedding reception, you know, you play, we played, we had a good time. And then le in less than a year later, I remember we were standing yeah, outside the moon shadow waiting to hear, I think, uh, David Grisman. Yeah, David Grisman. And we're all standing in line outside the venue waiting to go in. And I saw you that walked up to you. And that's when I invited you, you know, because I think you had already come over and played some with us before and uh, asked you to join Cedar Hill. 
And well, did. technically, you asked me to audition. Oh, that was okay. <laughs> and well, there, you know, at our age, you know, things get jumbled. Yeah, there were three or four people who who did the audition, as I understand. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. But you were by and far the, uh, the best and the most compatible because, folks, when you're, when you're joining a band or you're playing with a group of musicians or whatever, you know, you, it's kind of like being in a marriage. Everybody has to kind of give and take a little bit. You're and right. Stuff, and, and you have to compromise a lot. And that's why you don't see a lot of bands stay together very long because musicians, have, particularly performers, have pretty large-sized egos. And sometimes conflicts, you know, arise and, you know, bands end up getting busted up because of those. But luckily in Cedar Hill, you know, like I said, we've been together 46 years and we learned that, hey, you're going to have these rifts between personalities or whatever. But as long as the goal, uh, the goals are compatible, everybody, all of us wanted to learn to play. I mean, wanted to perform and, and get better. And we worked on you know, not just fast instrumentals, but also our vocals and stuff like that. And so, you know, when you're in a band, just remember that uh, you're not going to always get your way. And we always, you know, we always did it democratically. Most bands have a band leader that makes the decisions. So we always went with majority rules. Yeah, that is a and fact. Luckily, back then, we had five members of the crew. You know, now, right now, we only have four, and uh, so you can get a 50 50 split and not get anywhere. Right. You know? Right. That, that, so, but true. anyway, listen, Diana, just, just to tell you a little bit more about my background. You know, I started teaching banjo when I was at the University of Georgia. You know, I learned to play in about 71, 72, and I was teaching, you know, a friend of mine at the University of Georgia. And so that, that's how I got into teaching the banjo. And I, well, we've already mentioned Sapwood Society Pickers I play with in Cedar Hill. Um, but, you know, I love to take the banjo, I mean, and just go anywhere and play. It attracts attention. And for you guys, particularly these days, for you younger guys, believe it or not, banjos are chick magnets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's very cool to be able to play banjo these days. Sometimes back then it wasn't. It's kind of like being a fiddle player. You know, they call the fiddle the devil's box. Well, banjo pickers were right down there in the gutter with it. So, you know, <laughs> but anyway, I digress a little bit. I love playing the banjo. I, uh, in addition to Cedar Hill, I, you know, I've played with a lot of different other groups just kind of as a, uh, a ringer. They bring me in or whatever. And um, I, I loved uh, going on mission trips with my church and bringing my banjo. And the banjo and the duck would break down cultural barriers. So, we're talking, I've been on Belgium twice, Ghana twice, Africa twice, Russia, uh, Moscow once, China, uh, even Mississippi <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Kentucky because, you know, there's some poor folks down there, and particularly after Katrina and Mississippi that needed some help. But a lot of churches went down to help me. My banjo picking was right there in the middle. And those people that came from Kentucky, man, they loved it every morning when I'd wake them up with banjo. <laughs> So, but anyway, I, I'm just saying that the banjo has been good to me. It's opened doors uh, that I would never have walked through had I not learned to play. And uh, it's just still magical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the feeling that you get and the way people react to it. Well, that, you know? <clears throat> let me interject here. That uh, brings up an observation that I made when I first met you. And it has remained true to this day. It, and that, and this isn't true for every musician. This has really almost nothing to do with the quality of musicianship, which in your case is extremely high. I'm, it, this, but the thing that was different about you and Cedar Hill and why I wanted to be in the band, and I was in for 27 and a half years, I know, almost 28. And it's still true to this day is that you considered entertainment value to be as important as musical value. Like the That's musical right. values had to be high, as as high as they could be. But there was this other side, entertainment. 
And if you, you could know? talk a little bit about that, I, I, I heard this phrase the other day, and I think it, it describes you well. And see if, see if you disagree. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And <laughs> I've always thought that the Cedar Hill way was to, well, you know, your average band would stop here, but we're going to take it up a notch to here, you know, yeah. and do yeah. the extra super crazy thing with the polka dot underwear thing or whatever, you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Or the wigs we used to wear when we do right. a, a, an acapella version of uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Right. bluegrass, but it was entertainment. <laughs> yeah. What was that Billy Joel song we did? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. For the Longest Time. For the Longest Time. Yeah. You know, choreographed uh, yeah well you know i learned a long time ago that people love music i mean they they like to listen to music and, and hear it and stuff but even more so they love to be entertained and if you go to some bluegrass festivals or whatever there's a couple of groups that you know in between songs and stuff will keep the audience engaged and entertain them and do some funny stuff of course little roy's at the top of the heat that, yeah yeah uh, you know and but uh, again, you know, people love to laugh and be entertaining. So what you do is you start collecting these one-liner jokes, listening for them and stuff. I even picked up jokes from other bands. You know, I didn't. It didn't matter to me that I was, you know, using some of their their stuff. Right, and I, good. I liked it. You know, I noticed a and, lot of our material developed out of just little ad lib comments that would would get a reaction and then it would we'd hone it a little bit and do it again and we'd get a better reaction and then it just became standard boilerplate cedar hill stuff you know that's right like that's the right. first time i remember you used to do the when we were doing the duck voice thing or you would do the duck voice thing and just one time on a whim i reached up and took the duck hat off of your head and you immediately shifted into regular human voice and said, D put that hat back on my, and I slapped it down. And you instantly switched to duck voice for the word <laughs> head. And it was, it, it just head. was a magical moment. It was just <laughs> totally off the cuff and ad libbed. And it Always became, it, and we had it down. We did that thing thousands of times. Man, we had so many great routines and stuff. But again, folks, it's all about, uh, entertaining and stuff. And if you, if you go to a festival, you'll see, like I said, some groups that are pretty good at it, but a, a lot of groups, they just stand up there and, you know, they're not laughing, they're not smiling. And, uh, you know, it, it's just they don't have the audience that's engaged. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and so. Now we did, for contrast, we did play it straight sometimes. I mean, oh, yeah. you you can't ham it up on every tune, so it was no. just kind of an ebb and flow of fun, and then a little a little bit of serious stuff because we had some serious type things that we did. Sure. And then you'd well, hit you know, them upside the head, you know, with some slapstick. Yeah. Do you do you remember the time it was? I think in the late eighties that we played uh, the festival of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Norman Adams and Tony Anderson, you know, put that on back in the day. Right. And that we got out uh, there and you know, they put us, you know, in between a lot of the big stars, you know, the country gentlemen, you know, whoever. And we did our version of Dixie. And uh, Charlie Waller came out after and said, that's the prettiest rendition of Dixie I've ever heard. Well, you know, even though we recorded it with, you know, a certain group of musicians, we kept doing that thing. And it was, it was a beautiful core rendition of it. That's right. And it was, that, technically, it was the Norman Luboff arrangement. Well, we didn't know that. You know, Jeff, well, Jeff knew who that. I mentioned I was in the Glee Club with. Jeff you know, knew he, that. He is now a world-renowned director, core director. He's been the director of core activities at the University of Kentucky for about, you know, almost 30 years. But uh, he was the one that brought that arrangement. Uh, and, you know, he may have changed it just a little bit from what Norman Luboff did, but we didn't mean to about Norman Luboff until we were playing up in Dahlonega <laughs> and, and we came off stage after having ended with Dixie and Doc Watson and T. Michael Coleman 
were getting ready to come on and see Michael Cohen looked at it and said, Norman Lubaugh, I wish you could have seen Jeff's jaw drop at that point in time. He's so he proud. Turned a little red face or whatever. <laughs> but he, he says, yep. He says, I made a few changes, but yep, no. See, you couldn't fool T. Michael. He was very well versed in a lot of different kinds of music. Yep. That's just another Jeff. example of how lucky, lucky we are to have played with the pioneers of bluegrass music at festivals. You know, Bill Monroe. I uh, wish we could have done Earl uh, Flat and Scrubs, but they broke up, you know, before we had that opportunity and stuff. But, I mean, you name it, uh, you know, Osmond Brothers, uh, Kim and Jesse, uh, you know, you name it. We played with a lot of those uh, first-generation bluegrass pickers. And that's been quite an honor. You know, we're lucky to have lived during that time or lived during this time, you know, when we uh, were alive. Yeah, you know, we lost what three or four great manual pickers this past year. Yeah, I mean, you know, really Bill the, the and let's start with Tony Rice. I mean, yeah, not a banjo Tony player, Rice but super yeah, important. Yeah. I know it. And then JD Emerson, Sonny, Sonny Osmond. Hey, uh, just real quick, we'll probably end it up on this. I, I think we could do like ten volumes of this because there's an yeah. endless well of stories. I got. You know, we could talk yeah. about me being thrown in the pool. We could talk about you being yeah. um, harassed by Sonny Osborne for climbing on Little Roy's bus, Little Roy's bus bumper. Yeah. And and that goes back, I mean, we're talking like 1977. This this is an endless series that we could do. But uh, go ahead and tell that story of, it was the uh, um, 11 Alive Bluegrass Festival um, it was up in north of Atlanta. I think it might have been where they used to have the steeplechase, the old place where they had steeplechase, like Seven Branches Farm or something like that. And it was a one-day festival. Had everybody, had John Hartford, had Country Gentleman, had um, Flat, uh, Lester Flat, Nashville Grass, Bill Monroe, Osborne Brothers, you name it. They're all there, Lewis family. And you were there. And I was there. And uh, so tell about the thing with the bus when you went down to find Little Roy. Yeah, this was up in uh, Gainesville, Georgia. That's right. There, and, you know, like I said, I'm from Lincoln and Georgia, uh, which is where Little Roy and Lewis family are from. And so I knew Little Roy real well. And, you know, every time he played, I tried to go see him if he was anywhere in the Atlanta area. So Gainesville was close enough. So when I arrived, I saw their bus. I always drove, drove around till I could see the Lewis family bus. And so I parked my car, and, you know, a lot of times they just hang out on the bus. So I went over to the bus, and this thing was brand new at that time. And, and uh, so anyway, I couldn't see anybody in there. So I climbed up, stepped up on the front bumper so I could look through the front window. And just as I was doing that, Sonny Osmond comes out the store and looks and starts hollering, hey, you get down from there. Get down from there. You get down there. I said, oh, it's okay. It's okay. I know little Roy Lewis. And he and our friends and stuff. And his demeanor changed a little bit. He says, well, okay, but don't be climbing on that bumper. <laughs> so, you know, but but funny, he, you know, he could, uh, at times, particularly if you were a sound guy, he could rake you over the coals <laughs> a lot. Don't you remember we played uh, some places where, I mean, I'm glad that I wasn't the guy behind those controls because there wasn't, if there was any feedback or oh, anything man. like that, yeah. Sonny would let them know. But, you know, that's that's like a lot of us. When we, you know, when we do go and perform music, we want folks to be able to hear and hear us do our best. So if you've got a sound system that ain't delivering, then, you know, you're not doing your best. You may be thinking you're doing your best, but you can't because it ain't mixed right. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, but uh, that was that little story. Yeah, that has certainly happened to us a few times. Uh, we typically ran our own sound at our own private gigs, corporate functions, parties, etc. That's right. And then at most of the bluegrass festivals, the sound would be excellent. You had people like Gene Daniel and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Running sound. It was usually transparent. You just simply walked out and played. 
and everything right. went perfectly. It was the little uh, like city festivals or the county would have a little thing, uh, like music in the park, this kind of thing, where you had basically a rock sound guy, yeah, who didn't know what to do with you and and yeah. just wrecked it. Uh, it. But it only happened a couple of times, you know. Yeah, <laughs> pretty right. pretty rare. Well, listen, Duck, it has uh, certainly been great to have you on here. I know we could, we could do, we should do more episodes to dig into some more of these stories, but I appreciate you carving out some time for me today and for yeah. our listeners. And is there anything uh, you want to say here at the end? Like, I, I know Cedar Hill's still playing. Uh, anything, anything on the books? Anything coming up that people need well, to know nothing about? Public. Nothing public. Uh, right now, we do a lot of private parties and stuff like that. But uh, what I would like to do is maybe uh, do a little ending banjo lick. Okay. Uh, yeah. That I happen to have my old trusty banjo or one of them right here. Uh, this is my 1929 TB2. And, uh, you know, TB means it's, it, it was born as a tenor banjo, but it's been converted to a five string. Tenor's a four string. And so. Um, you know, I like doing the scrubs, but I also like doing the melodic and stuff like that, and chromatic. And melodic has more of a melody. Chromatic is just like almost half notes, you know, one step apart <laughs> from each other. But anyway, let me just warm my fingers up a second, and I'll do this lick for you, and I hope it comes through. Okay. okay? Yeah, sounds right. good. Oh, that is a beautiful lick. I mean, I have to say, a banjo over a telephone typically doesn't work very well. But I think the uh, the gist of it was there. That's a definitely a cool lick. I, I can't I can't recall the countless hours you and I have spent playing licks like that, sitting around at a festival waiting for the next set. And you know, I played banjo too, and so you and I would spend a lot of time just here. Try this. Hey, check yeah. out this. What do you think of this? And just on and on and on and on and on. And that's how you learn. That's how you progress. You know? That is a fact. Stuff. Different licks. Well, anyway, they become your vocabulary. I hope we get to pick together here soon. As soon as the weather gets warm, I'm going to throw down a, a big jam down here. Maybe do a, kind of a Larry Bishop type deal down here. Um, yeah. In and, States. Yeah. Or Americas. Americas. Americas, yeah. Sumter County, Georgia. We are, I live 10 miles from Plains, Georgia, home of Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. Carter. That's right. Yeah. Home of the peanut. Yeah, so, I think uh, I'm going to go eat some right now. Yeah, definitely With should. Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So, Duck, thanks but, a bunch. I'll be hey, talking welcome. to you soon. Okay, Brad. And behave yourself. If you don't behave, I will tell you mom. Hi, dude. Thanks, Doug. I'll be talking to you. Bye. Okay. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with the donkey started up the instant I started talking. The trials and tribulations of doing a podcast. I think they're done. Okay. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Jim Duck Adkins. And if you're up around the Marietta Georgia area, or in the generally around Atlanta and that region, you've probably already run into him. He's kind of hard to miss. <laughs> um, definitely a Type A personality in a jam setting, but a very—he's um, the kind of guy that is very sharing. He will help, uh, you know, a beginner. He'll teach a little kid how to play a chord on a banjo. Uh, but the one thing we didn't get into very much was his um, amazing ability to talk like a duck. And maybe if I get him back on another time, we'll talk about exactly how <laughs> how that came about. He was just really born with a gift. Um, you know, some people have certain gifts, and that's his gift, among <laughs> several others. But uh, the ability to talk like a duck. But... 
he takes it one step further and can sing in a duck voice better than I've ever heard. I think he did. He even did an album called Jingle Duck of duck um, Christmas songs. So uh, look for that, Jingle Duck. But here is an example just to close out the show. Uh, I will go out with um, Jim Duck Adkins and Cedar Hill doing a little bit of that old Hank Williams song, Your Cheatin' Heart. Oh. 